This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. so good to have uh, Rachel and Andrew with us uh, over the weekend. Uh, guys, we love you both. We're uh, thrilled with all that God is doing uh, with you and in you. And uh, so grateful for friendship and uh, just so enjoyed all you brought to us last night. And very much looking forward to all that Andrew's going to bring to us this morning. So let's welcome, please, Andrew Wilson. Thank you so much again. It's funny, whenever I've read the New Testament, my abiding image of Peter has been in an armchair in a pink shirt. Isn't it the same for you? It's just how I imagine him. <laughs> Thank you, Graham. That was very kind. Um, I'd like to speak this morning on the subject of Jesus in Genesis. Jesus in Genesis. And if you have a Bible, could you turn to Genesis 28? We have, um, we've been looking at this theme a lot, haven't we, of the story? And about God telling our story. We looked at it last night, but it's been a theme throughout the conference, throughout a lot of the words that have come and the understanding the youth and kids' work as well. And um, I, I, obviously, we all love stories. We all love reading them and watching them. Rachel and I are real box set uh, fanatics. I just you know, picked up last night that the new Jed Mercurio show has started on BBC. We'll have to get back into that as soon as we get back home. And love those box sets that give you a twist towards the very end, particularly the ones where you suddenly realize it was you all along. It was this, and you spend the whole show guessing, is it going to be her? Is it going to be him? Is it, you know, not just murder shows, but like where there's a spy undercover and you suddenly realize, it was you. I can't believe it. Like the end of The Usual Suspects, which if you haven't seen it, oh, what, I mean, it wouldn't, the movie wouldn't be for everybody here, particularly the younger ones, but my goodness, like the end comes, you're like, I can't believe it was you. Or the end of the first season of 24. If you haven't seen it by now, you won't have. But that moment when you find Nina speaking Serbian on the phone, and we'll go, oh, it was you all along. It's just this glorious reveal. And, um, or the moment at the end of you know, Planet of the Apes, if you're a little bit older, where Charlton Heston suddenly sees the Statue of Liberty. You ready? You know, those great reveals where you suddenly realize that the big twist comes at the end. Or pretty much every episode of Scooby-Doo. Um, <laughs> You know, and then suddenly you get, it was you, and off kind of comes this implausible mask, and underneath it's the guy that was always sort of shiftily hovering in the background. Um, there's something very satisfying about discovering something that's been hidden in plain sight, that you, you've seen the story, and then you suddenly find, oh, it was you all along, and then you have to rethink everything else. It actually happens in real life sometimes as well. I was, um, you've met Rachel now, so it's an easier story to for you to see, but I, I was, um, when we lived in our old flat, we lived in the sort of center of town, where it kind of, things could get kind of noisy at night, a lot of students, a lot of loud, you know, people shouting outside and so on, and um, there was this, just one night, I was, I was aware, because, you know, Rachel got up to go to the loo, and our loo was downstairs, and uh, so she just sort of gone, and I kind of, you stir as you do, and there's a bit of noise outside with these, um, you know, teens and stuff, just sort of shouting and being a bit leery, and then just heard one of our neighbors going absolutely postal at these young people, just like screaming out the window, shut up, shut up, people are trying to get to sleep, shut up, go shopping. And it was an absolute apocalyptic moment. And Rachel got back from the loo, and I just said, one of our neighbors just lost it with the students on the opposite side of the road. And she went, that was me. It was just, <laughs> it was just glorious. And you know, you're half asleep, you don't really know. She's like, it was you. And, uh, 
there's a lot of that that happens. Actually, sometimes you get that when you read Scripture. And what I want us to, to see that as we read Genesis, actually, there's quite a lot of that, that you are reading a story and something happens either in it or later on in Scripture that helps you realize it was you. I didn't know that was you, Jesus. I didn't see you here. And I've suddenly realized it is you, and I've now had to reread the whole story with that in mind. Last year, I read The Horse and His Boy, the C.S. Lewis story to my son. And uh, this is a story of you know, Shasta, the, uh, Shasta and Bree, the horse. There's a young boy and a horse uh, heading north towards Narnia. And they have all sorts of adventures, and they get chased by lions, and they get you know, uh, outside this sort of ruined city amongst the graves. And all these big adventures happen to them. And then at the very end of the story, they finally meet Aslan, the great lion. And he makes this amazing speech to them. He, he tells them, they, they finally discover it was him all along. And he says to them, I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion who you don't remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. And Azan reveals himself as the, the, in, the, the lion. And we've encountered these lions and not noticed that really we think these lions are trying to kill him. And then at the end of the story, we finally realize it was you. Everywhere we look, we thought it was someone trying to attack us or random events. And then we realized all along it was you working for our good. And we, we didn't know that. And there's a lot of that in Genesis. And you can read Genesis as a, a fascinating roller coaster soap opera story of a very troubled and dysfunctional family. But it's great when you read it and suddenly think, there's Jesus everywhere, and I didn't know. Let's read from Genesis 28, beginning at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so he calls it Bethel, the house of God. Bethel, we call it now. That surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And at one level, that's just Jacob waking up from a startling dream. God was here, and I didn't realize. But on another level, it's the comment that you and I can and should make as we read through the whole Bible. And certainly as we read through Genesis, we're reading through again and again thinking, it was you. I thought it was the, the Larry neighbor downstairs. I thought it was someone else, but it was you all along. And I didn't realize. Think for a moment about Nathaniel, the young Israelite man whom Jesus calls to follow him at the start of John's gospel. 
John 1.51, Jesus' first opening conversation with this man. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. And Nathaniel has read Genesis, I assume, and he knows. No, no, no. When you see heaven open, there are, the angels of God are ascending and descending on something, but they're not ascending and descending on a person. They're ascending and descending on a ladder. I know that story. My great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather you know, had that experience, and it's been foundational for us ever since. And Jesus is saying, no, what Jacob actually saw was the angels of God ascending and descending. And what you will see is the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, portrayed in this vision as a ladder. And Jacob didn't know it was me, and neither do you. I imagine Nathaniel going, whoa, surely the Lord, the Lord is in this place, in front of me, in this Jewish man talking to me. The Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And I suggest that's how we are invited to read the book of Genesis. Again and again. Seeing Jesus in Jacob's ladder, seeing Jesus in all kinds of places where we might not have noticed he was there. And then find towards the end, like Aslan, he says, I was the lion. I want to show a few examples of how we can do that. They're not, it's not an exhaustive list, and I want to focus towards the end on one story particularly, but to show you a whole bunch of ways in which that happens. And some of this, it will depend a little bit how well you know the story of Genesis as to how many of these You've seen, or what, and if you haven't seen any, great. If you've seen them all, that's great too. But I just want to very quickly walk through Genesis and give you some examples of how we can read Scripture and say, it was you, and I didn't know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Did you see Jesus in that text? No, what are you talking about? In the beginning, God and the Spirit was hovering, and then God spoke, and by the Word created light. God, Spirit, Word. In the opening two verses of the Bible. We're supposed to read it and go, it was you all along. I don't mean they were supposed to know that. I, I don't think they would have gone, ah, the Trinity. They'd have gone, hmm, interesting story, what happens next? But we can, and go back and say, oh, God. God creates by means of the word as the spirit hovers and broods. He's doing it right now. He is creating new life on this site. We've just heard a story about 40 in the young people. God is creating new life as the spirit hovers and the word goes forward. And that's what he does all the time. And it's right there in the first two verses of scripture. He forms the world and he fills the world. And then there's the pinnacle of creation. He creates human beings, male and female. And he says, let us make man in our image. Male and female, unity and diversity. And we go, that's the image of God involves a sort of coming together of difference as well as unity. So there's plurality in oneness. And we go, that's, is that the Trinity? It was you all along. Like right there in Genesis 1. On the sixth day of the week, the image of God, human beings, are standing there and God says, if you like, to the rest of creation, behold, man, creation, here is your king. Go out and rule it. And then thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, Jesus, the image of God, is wheeled out on the sixth day of the week. And he stands in front of a massive crowd. And Pilate, playing the God role bizarrely, says, Behold, man. And then he says, 
here is your king. And they say, crucify him. And you go back to Genesis 1, you go, it was, it was you. Like, this story's been told to set me up for that. And I, oh, hang on a second, I've now got to John's gospel. I have to go back right back to the beginning and read the whole thing. As if you have to then rewatch 24 and work out, how did Nina do that? I have to read it again and go, oh, it's you. But human beings fall. So God gives the promise that shapes the rest of Genesis and the rest of Scripture and the rest of history. And he says, the woman's seed. The first gospel preaching in the Bible is given to the snake. I just love that. The first time the gospel is preached, it's preached to the devil. The woman's seed will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This seed... This snake crusher, this human individual who will be descended from the woman is going to be the hope of the world who's going to destroy the power of sin and death. And that's where all the hope comes from. And then as the rest of the story of Genesis unfolds, we get more and more clarity on who the seed is. And we start going, oh, okay, he's descended from Abraham and Sarah via Isaac and Rebekah, via Jacob and Leah, via Judah and Tamar. And then it goes on through the Bible. Okay, and he's going to be born of Boaz and Ruth of David. He's going to be born in poverty to a virgin young woman, and it goes all the way through. And then eventually we find out, here he is. Behold, your king. Goes right back to the seed, the snake crusher in Genesis. If you haven't ever read, I think adults, by the way, should read the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's just incredible. It's so good. And it's like, it's just a way of expounding this theme. But I think a lot of adults don't see it, let alone kids. I just think if you haven't read it, it's you know, picture Bible for children aged, I don't know, six, seven, that sort of age, but it's just so enlightening, it's so helpful. You got to find Jesus is in the garden even, even there as well, where Satan says, of course, to Adam and Eve, did God really say? And they go, crunch. And then, again, thousands of years later, Jesus, Satan's going, did God really say? And Jesus says to Satan, it is written. Crunch. It's beautiful. And just Jesus is reversing what Adam and Eve did. Adam says to God in a garden, not your will, but mine. Jesus says to God in a garden, not my will, but yours. And in the unraveling that follows, the innocent son, Abel, is slain by his brother, Cain, inaugurating the reign of death. And his blood, Abel's blood, cries out from the ground for justice. But when the snake crusher finally comes... It's as another innocent son, Jesus, is slain by his brothers, but his blood cries out for mercy and acquittal and grace, and his blood inaugurates the reign of life rather than the reign of death. So when you read Genesis 5, and it just says, and then he came, and then he died, and then he came, and then he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And it goes all the way through Genesis 5 with the drumbeat of death, and then you read Jesus, and you're just like, and then the blood of Jesus cried out from the crowd, and he lived, and she lived, and she lived, and he lived, and he lived, and they all came alive. You think, wow, she was you. You were there all along. Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Surely Jesus was in this place, and I didn't know it. So you get that throughout the opening chapters. We could do more. We could see it in Noah. We could see it in Babel. We don't have time for them all. But as you get to the story of Abraham, you see it a lot, because Abraham, no pun intended on the word a lot, by the way, but you see it a lot as, as Abraham, I didn't mean to, but Abraham is doing this, it goes through the story, and you find Jesus again and again surfacing in the story of Abraham's family. In Genesis 14, Abraham wins a battle to conquer these kings who have kidnapped his nephew, Lot, and bring them home. And then he's just finished, and you think the story's, yeah, Abraham wins, yay. And they all sit down and kind of go, oh, that was, that was a tiring day. Um, like, you know, in 300, he goes, 
Hell of a good start. And you think, I imagine Abraham doing that. Yeah, okay, well done. We've got him back. And then out of nowhere, this mysterious enigmatic priest king called Melchizedek arrives. And his name means, you know, king of righteousness. And he's the king of a nearby city called Salem, which means king of peace. And he just appears and goes, just thought you might like some bread and wine. And then just disappears into thin air. You're like, hello? Like what? And then you go back to the end of scripture. And in fact, you have to wait until Hebrews to find out what on earth that's about. Okay, it was you. I'm not saying Melchizedek is Jesus. I'm just, you see what I mean? You're seeing the picture of Jesus in these people. In Genesis 18, Abraham and Sarah have people around for dinner. Three people hanging out outside. Um, you know, and in the Middle East, you see people hanging out outside. You invite them in for dinner. In Britain, we sort of say, um, yeah, could you stop loitering? Um, or something like that. But in the Middle East, they say, yeah, come in, come in. You know, and they press them to stay, and they do. And as we read these mysterious dinner guests, you're going to see a, a picture on the screen. You, you find yourself asking, how many of them are there? Three or one? You may have seen this picture before. This is an icon. It's one of the most famous icons in the history of the Russian church by Rublev. I'm not, by the way, a fan of making pictures of God. I'm certainly not a fan of using them for worship, so I'm not saying we should do this, but this picture is Rublev's way of trying to expose the fact that although, the, I mean, and he calls the picture Abraham and his visitors, but it's otherwise known as the Trinity. And when you look at the symbolism in the art, if you know this stuff, you see actually how those three figures represent the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, and how, in a way, Rublev is saying, there's... This picture is not just about, you know, this story is not just about three people coming for dinner. This is about God himself coming. And we know that because you find described as the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, which makes it sound like there's one person there. And then it says, behold, three men were standing in front of him. It's like, hang on, you, the one, the three? And then it's, they, later on, they said, and these are not the only references, but they're just, I could only fit four on the slide. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, well, she's in the tent. The Lord says, I will surely return and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And, you go, and if you do this and study Genesis 18, you'll just find it not just four. There's loads of them just going one, three, 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 one, 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 three, one, three, one. What? And then you read it through the lens of Christian theology and you say, it was you. I didn't know it. Genesis 22, Isaac you may remember the story is rescued from being sacrificed by the substitutionary lamb that is provided caught in a thicket. And Abraham responds by giving God another name. And he says, the Lord will provide. God looks at Abraham being prepared to sacrifice his only son. And God knows that Abraham loves him. And in the same way, we find God the Father setting forth a substitute for us who gets sacrificed so we don't have to be, and then we're able to look at God and say to him what God said to Abraham, which is, because I've seen you being prepared to sacrifice your one and only son whom you love, I know you must love me. Genesis 27, we saw it last night. Esau scorns his inheritance for the sake of short-term comfort. Jesus, in going to the cross, is the anti-Esau who scorns his short-term comfort for the sake of his inheritance. Genesis 28, we've just seen it. As we know, Jacob sees a ladder reaching to heaven. 2,000 years later, Jesus says something to Nathaniel that makes us say, it was you, it was you. Genesis 32, Jacob is wrestling, stopped at a river crossing on his way home, and he's wrestling with a man until the morning. Jacob is a proud man, and he struggles for ages. He doesn't want to give up. He fights. I don't want this. No, I don't want to. Come on. And finally, after the man has given him a limp, physically impaired him, and changed his name from Jacob to Israel, he finally realizes who it is. And he says, I have seen God face to face. 
Well, 2,000 years later, we meet another very, very proud man who has been struggling with God for a very long time. Struggling with God so much that God in Jesus is able to say to him, what are you persecuting me for? And when he finally meets God, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he is physically impaired by God. He has his name eventually, effectively changed from the name he uses, Saul, to the name Paul. And he spends the rest of his life telling people how he has seen the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 44. Joseph and his brothers are down in Egypt. Joseph is the prime minister. The brothers are gone down there to buy food. Benjamin, you may remember the elaborate story in which the, gold, the silver cup is in the sack and it looks like Benjamin's going to be taken captive. And uh, Judah has promised his old dad, don't worry, I know it sounds awful, but if anything is going to happen to Benjamin, I will vouch for him with my life. I will make sure that nothing, no harm comes to Benjamin. I'll step in if needed. And Jacob eventually, against his better judgment, says, okay, go. And so the brothers all go down. And then Joseph plays this trick on them and says, I'm going to take Benjamin captive because he wants to see if the brothers have changed. You remember the story? He says, I want to, I want to see if, he's, if they've changed. And so he says, I will take Benjamin back. And Judah steps up and gets in between the judge, if you like, and the young man. And he says, please, you have to let me substitute for him. Like I told my dad I was going to. I cannot go home to my father if I haven't taken him with me. I must substitute for him. Please don't harm the boy. Take me instead. And 2,000 years later, another person in the tribe of Judah steps up in front of the, the judge, if you like, and says, please don't harm the boy. Please don't harm the girl. I promised my father that I would intercept any judgment that was headed for him, even if he deserved it. I want to be the substitute. Please take me. I cannot go back to my dad unless they come with me. You see, over and over again, we read it and say, it was you. It was you. Genesis 49, this is the last one we'll look at for, for now until we tell the story that we want to look at a bit more. Jacob is prophesying over his 12 sons, and suddenly, he, having gone through the first three, Reuben, yeah, Simeon, yeah, Levi, you've got these promises. Judah. Judah, you're going to be, probably because of the story we've just heard about, actually, I think, the substitute thing. Judah, you will be a lion, and your brothers will bow down to you. And if we've read Genesis, we're expecting them to bow down to Joseph, because... Well, that was the dream he had, but Jacob says, actually, long-term, they're going to bow down to you, Judah, my fourth-born, and nations will bring tribute to you because you're the lion. And again, rest of the Bible unfolds, and Revelation, they start singing this song to the lion of the tribe of Judah before whom the nations bow down and bring their tribute, and we've just been doing it in fulfillment of what that old man said to his son 4,000 years ago. And I don't know whether they had any concept of how many nations in the world there were. They didn't know how big the world was. They had never heard, I'm afraid, of Canada or Australia or Ghana or Britain. Didn't know we were here. But they said the nations are going to come to a child who is going to be lion-like from the tribe of Judah. And they're going to bow down before him and worship him. And you imagine Judah's brothers going, you? Seriously? Who's going to worship anyone descending from you, you oik? Or words to that effect. And here we have just been singing to the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles and every knee shall bow before him. Do it all the time. It was you. I want to look at one more story in a moment, but let's pause for a moment. It's okay, that's a whistle-stop tour in Genesis. Why do we care? All right, some of you might like this kind of thing. I do. I trust that's obvious. 
But some of you guys, come on, apart from preachers and people who write books about the Bible, of course you'd be interested in it, but why do we care? I think there are several reasons that we should care and probably do care to some degree. I hope in some ways it stirs worship in us to hear some of it, but I think there are several reasons why why we care. One of them is that it shows us the the providence of God, that is, the, the way that God is orchestrating all things. I think that is a huge encouragement because I read the Bible and I really, a little bit like it gives you great confidence in the script writer of a drama when you realize that consistently this script writer has found a way of bringing an ending that's completely turned everything on their head. And you start to build confidence that the script writer's not just making it up an episode at a time. If I could take a this is a momentary segue. I'm going to get in trouble with some people here, but I acknowledge myself as a Liverpool fan, so that's probably happened already. But when, I don't know if you ever saw the TV show Lost, right? I was, we watched the first two and a bit seasons of Lost, and I just got so frustrated with the fact that I didn't in the end think the writers knew what they were doing. I thought they were just trying to... Every episode would end with something more bizarre than the previous one, and there was no sense of resolution. And I didn't, in the end, I lost confidence in the storyteller. But you watch another show, I just mentioned Jed Mercurio for you know, Line of Duty or something, and you think... Every time I've watched that, you've done something really great. And that builds my confidence that you know what you're doing and you can work this to a clever outcome. So when you read a book like Genesis and you see God again and again and again orchestrating his purposes to bring about a fulfillment in Christ, it can give you confidence that the story he's writing for you, even if, as we saw last night, you don't know how it's going to end, it's going to be a good one. That his capacity to provide twists and dramatic endings and things which turn everything on their head is greater than you realize. So you read Genesis that way and you think, ah, the, the sovereignty or the providence of God is a comfort to me in my story because I might be just like Jacob halfway through going, I don't know, I didn't know this was you and now I've realized it is. So I think it can do that. I think it also shows us the integrity and the truthfulness of Scripture. This is one reason I love it as a pastor because I realize if people don't have confidence in the truthfulness of God's word, They don't know where to start. They don't know what to build on. Jesus says, you build your life on my teaching and you'll be like a person who's built a house on the rock and you you never go anywhere no matter what the storm is. But when people are not sure about how to ground their faith, they don't know, do I build it on the word of God or do I just build it on an inner sense or experience that I've had? Or do I build it on what I've been told? I don't know. You say, I'm not building on rock. In fact, I might be building on sand and my house is just going to fall. And those people who cling to God in the face of intense difficulty and suffering pastorally are the people usually who have built their lives on the rock. And they do that because they've seen again and again the integrity and the truthfulness of Scripture through things just like this. And realized, wow, even when there it wasn't clear, this joins up with that and that's made the whole thing make sense for me. So I think it helps us see the truthfulness of Scripture. I think it helps us see the gospel and the glory of God more richly and more beautifully, that, and that draws us into worship, which makes us happy people. And I'm trusting that even as we worship at the end of this message, we will be able to worship God. I hope everyone here will have seen something that they hadn't seen before that enables them to say, Jesus, you're even better than I realized. Like, I love you for what you did for me, and I may know a lot about it or very little. It might be very new. This might be the first, your first public day as a Christian today. But as you, as you see these themes, you begin to say, there's even more to this mystery of grace than I've understood. It reassures me in the midst of suffering to know that God is at work in ways I can't see. And that I might even now be going through something that I will later look back on and say, oh, oh, oh my, surely God was in that place and I didn't know it. 
But perhaps most strikingly, the reason it matters is because it shows me that Scripture is not about me. That's what I love about it. When I read Genesis this way, or the Scriptures as a whole this way, and you can do this with every book, and I think to a point we should, what it does is it tells me this is not really about me. This is about Him. And that grounds me. That's why the Jesus Storybook Bible is so good, because it grounds you in the reality that although you can learn things from these stories for you, that's not the chief purpose. It's good to learn life lessons from the patriarchs, right? I do myself. I like doing that. You should always trust God's promises, right? Like Abraham did, even if you don't know where he's taking you. Some of them might be slightly sillier life lessons, like always check, based on Jacob here, always check that you've gone home with the right person after your wedding. Always worth the check. You never know, do you? Like, who might she be? The, the weird, sinister, identical twin sister or whatever? You know, I better check that it's actually who I thought I'd married. Or stone pillows will give you a weird dream. Or don't bully people in multicolored clothes because they might become prime minister one day. Hence, I'm going to have to retract what I just said to Graham about the pink shirt and the sofa. And so you can learn life lessons, some of them silly, some of them real. But in the end, that's not the chief purpose of the book of Genesis. It's not really about you, it's about him. And I, I realized the, uh, an analogy for this that helped me a lot a few years ago, because I've done a lot of marriages, weddings in my church, um, as most pastors in the room have. So you often find that when you travel, you know, particularly younger couples in the church who are younger than me, I can visit a lot of homes in the Eastbourne area where there's a picture of me in their sitting room. But it isn't really a picture of me, it's a picture in which I happen to be vaguely there, shaded out, and there's a pristine picture of the two of them. And usually she's looking fantastic, and he's looking, how on earth did I get here? And then there's in the background, there's me maybe smiling or pronouncing or looking austere or clapping or something. And I could travel from room to room going, another picture of me! <laughs> but some of us read the Bible like that. Some of us read the Bible like that. It's going, another great life lesson for me. Yes, another person who really reminds me of me. I had a difficult twin brother who liked soup. <laughs> and, and what's supposed to happen is we go, no, no, no. You are there by the grace of God. You are. You can see that. There is a shaded picture of you. Thank God for that. And you may be able to learn some things from that. But the picture's not you. The picture is them. It's the bride and the bridegroom coming together. Celebrate them. Focus on that. And by all means, take other lessons from it. But recognize you are not the point of the picture. And that helps you when you read Genesis because ultimately you then look for signs of what God has done in these lives rather than signs of what they have done. And it helps you read it as a book of grace. So if you read scripture for life lessons for you, it will be very difficult not to read it as, a, in the end, a book of law, a book of how-tos, of instructions. And there are lots of instructions in the Bible. I don't deny that for a moment. But the, pre, the primary purpose of stories like Genesis and the rest of the Bible is not to say, here's some things you should and shouldn't do. The primary purpose, that's a second reading, the primary purpose is to reveal the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, it's, otherwise you are inclined to read Genesis like a sort of a story of uh, you know, a group of people who worked hard and working together, they got the job done, like sort of Bronze Age Bob the Builder. And so that's not the purpose of Genesis. These are not a group of people who worked hard and got the job done. 
the sort of, you know, the sort of lofty figure over in the corner going, oh, I don't think so. And you imagine that kind of, well, that's not the Genesis is. Genesis instead is a group of messed up people who did not work together at all, who did everything they could to unspool the covenant promises of God, and in spite of whom God saw his purposes go to the ends of the earth anyway, because their failures failed every time to overrule the unstoppable faithfulness of God. And when you read Genesis that way, you think it's grace. There's grace in this story from beginning to end. So when you read Genesis or any other book of Scripture and see Jesus in these ways, it brings enormous encouragement to us in our ordinary, run-of-the-mill lives. God is good. He is at work. He is doing something here. I don't know what, but one day I will look back and say, it was you, and I didn't realize. And his life, death, and resurrection have the power to break every chain and to right every wrong, even if they're things I've brought upon myself. I said I just wanted to look at one more brief story. And that's the story of Joseph. Of all, the, of all the moments in Genesis, this is the story that, for me, makes me marvel the most. It was you. Surely the Lord was in this place, and I didn't know it. Joseph, like Jesus, is favored by his father as the special son. He's given a clear sign of glory and honor in front of his whole family. He's set aside as the one to whom the nations will come and bow, like Jesus. He's given revelation that the whole of Israel will worship him, and that prompts jealousy and hatred from his brothers, just like Jesus. He is sent then to go and serve his brothers on behalf of the Father, and then to return to his Father, having blessed them. That's what Joseph does. And of course, the same happens for Jesus. Joseph goes out saying, here I am, seeking my brothers. So Jesus comes to you, and he says, here I am, I'm seeking my brothers. But Joseph came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And Jesus came to his own. His own did not receive him. In fact, they conspired to kill him. And they threw him into a well. He was not killed in the end because powerful figures interceded for him and said, this person should not be killed. Just even as Pilate, as we've seen earlier, comes out and says, I don't think you should kill this person. But eventually, Joseph is thrown into the pit anyway. And actually, he's thrown into the pit, sold for the price of a slave, 20 pieces of silver, through the mediation of his brother, whose name is Judah. Judah. Jesus himself ultimately thrown into the pit, the grave, and ransomed for the price of a slave through the mediation of one of his followers, one of 12, whose name is Judah. Judas in Greek, but same name. The blood is then presented to the father, and the blood that's presented in Genesis is the blood of a goat. That's the sacrificial animal in Leviticus and is going to represent atonement. And in the same way, Jesus immediately on going into the grave, the blood of what he has accomplished is presented to his father and provides atonement for his brothers. In that sense, Joseph not only goes down into the grave, in the pit, but he also goes into the grave with blood, representing atonement, and with slavery, representing ransom. And in that sense, all of what Jesus accomplishes is foreshadowed in Joseph. Joseph then goes off to Potiphar's house, and all that he does prospers because the Lord is with him. And same is true for Jesus. Joseph fights temptation, and he wins. Same as Jesus. He is nevertheless accused of doing something that he didn't do. Same as Jesus, and thrown into prison. However, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love as he was with Jesus. Joseph in prison is innocent between two criminals. You ever notice that? Joseph's in prison. There's two criminals. In fact, they look just the same. One of them is a baker representing bread. The other one is a cupbearer representing wine. And Joseph is in prison in between the two of them. And then Jesus is standing there dying in between two criminals, and they look just the same. 
But in Joseph's case, he turns to one of the two men who look just the same and says, you are going to be condemned, but you are going to be exalted. And Jesus turns to the two people, one on each side, ignores the one of them and says to the other one, you are going to be with me in paradise. It doesn't stop there. Joseph then gets vindicated after a long spell of being effectively in the grave, the, the pit, the prison. He's vindicated and he gets brought to the palace. And he emerges from the pit and the grave with it's interesting detail in Genesis 41, 14, with a new face, washed his face and new clothes. Jesus steps out of the tomb and his face and his clothes are the thing that people immediately notice don't look the same. Joseph's appearance is immediately hailed as good news for the whole nation. Can we find anyone else like this? One in whom is the Spirit of God, is what they say of him. Sounds like exactly what you would say of Jesus. Can we, is there anybody else like this? The Spirit of God is in him. As a result of which, Joseph gets exalted to the right hand of the most powerful man in the world, the Most High, and Joseph gets people sent out in front of him, emissaries or ambassadors, who shout out, Genesis 41, 43, bow the knee, bow the knee, bow the knee to this great king who sits at the right hand of the Most High. And you and I get sent out into the world shouting, bow the knee, bow the knee to this great Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Most High. The result of that is blessing for the whole world, in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. The world comes to Joseph hungry and desperate and says, we're in famine here, we're dying. Please, would you give us some bread? And the world comes to Jesus and says, we are dying and starving. We need the bread of life. Please, would you give it to us? And Jesus says, absolutely. I've got seven years worth of store for you to consume as much as you want. At the end of the story, Joseph is able to look back at everything that's happened and say, Genesis 50, verse 20, yes, you did mean this for evil, guys, but God meant it for good, that many should be saved. And Jesus looks back on the other side of the cross and says, yeah, you meant it, Pilate, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders, the disciples, Judas, you all meant it for, good, for, for evil, but God meant the very things you're doing now for good, that many lives should be saved as they are at this day. Isn't Jesus glorious? This story is not about you. It's about how God continues to break in and save over and over and over again, leading generations upon generations of people to say, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. It's like the Lord is saying the main character in Genesis is me. It's, I'm the one in the center of the wedding photo. It's not Adam and Eve or Abraham or Sarah or Jacob, Rachel or Leah. The main character in Genesis is me. I am the creator. I am the image of God. I am the snake crusher. I am the ark. I am the rainbow maker. I am the tower breaker. I chose Abraham. I saw Hagar. I protected Ishmael. I healed Sarah. I provided for Isaac. I wrestled with Jacob. It was me. I am the priest king. In the order of Melchizedek, who comes to you when you're struggling and exhausted and weary and says, be refreshed and have some bread and wine. Here is my body, my blood given for you. I am Abraham's visitors. I am Sarah's comfort. I am Isaac's substitutionary sacrifice. I'm Leah's praise. I'm Tamar's hope. I'm Joseph's successor. I'm Judah's lion. I'm Jacob's ladder. And truly, you are going to see heaven opened and angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Isn't he glorious? It's never been about primarily about us. It's always been about him, the one to whom all things point. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his supremacy, for his beauty, 
Lord, we pray that in all of the different things we've thrown out this morning, Lord, there would be fuel for worship and joy that would sustain us, not just in conference mode, but in everyday life mode, that the brothers and sisters here would carry a sense of the delight, the beauty, the wonder of Jesus Christ everywhere they go, that our faces like his would shine as a result of the resurrection that we've effectively got an advanced taste of now through your work. And we pray that we would revel in your word and delight in your son for his glory. Amen. Wasn't, wasn't that breathtaking? Wasn't that amazing? Thank you, Andrew. Let's just honor Andrew and Rachel. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Just because of the family circumstances that Andrew and Rachel find themselves in, just as we're worshiping God now, they're going to worship a little while with us, but then they'll be exiting. Please allow them to exit. Uh, and please, guys, go with our blessing. Uh, send our love to people at Eastbourne and in London, uh, in King, both kings, two kings, one kings and two kings. Please send them our love. We thank you so much for what you've brought. I think the only appropriate response for us to end this Christ Central devoted 2018 is to freshly devote ourselves to Jesus, who is at the center of it all. And we're going to just end this time. We've asked Nathan and Lou and the band just to lead us in worship to Jesus. Everything is about him. This story is about him. As Nicky Gumbel so often says, history is his story. It's all about Jesus. Why don't we just stand to our feet? Lord Jesus, we thank you that the whole of history is about you. You were the Word at the beginning. You spoke life. Lord Jesus, we thank you at the end. We get this incredible revelation of the Lamb on the throne. As the curtain pulls back, we find out it's all about Him. It's all about Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that we find our identity in the Lamb, in Christ. And we find our place, our part of the story in Him. It's His story. It's all about you, Jesus. Lord, this is leading us today to a great worship. It's leading us today to join in with the whole of history. It's leading us today to join in with angels and archangels who proclaim worthy, 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 holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb, holy is the Lord. Lord Jesus, it's all about you. We love you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. It's all about our great King, the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen.